0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Alison Moore, Associate Dean of Research at the School of Humanities and Communication Arts and Associate Professor of History and Medical Humanities at Western Sydney University to talk about her recent book, The French Invention of Menopause and the Medicalization of Women's Aging which was out in 2022 with Oxford University Press. Hello, Alison. How are you today? Terrific.
2: We're really good. Thanks, Jane. I'm uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, starting my work day in the Blue Mountains in uh, New South Wales, Australia.
1: <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, listeners, this is kind of an e- interesting, we're doing this over multiple days because Alison's in Australia, so it's the morning and I'm in Europe, so it's my night. Um, different days, and we're... Like, and also I'm living in what is passes for winter in this global warming world and you are in summer. It's very funny. It demonstrates kind of uh, just the big, beautiful construction of our planet, you know? Uh, planets are weird. That's what we've got. Uh, <laughs> so that's cool. All right. Let's, uh, let's get to it. Okay. So Allison, you're the author of a good deal of work on sexuality, particularly in conversation with gender, aging, medicine, the history of like the history of medicine in general. So this works right up your wheelhouse. I see how you kind of like how, how this could have been in your, in your frame. But I'm curious how you came to write about menopause and specifically kind of this moment when menopause begins to have a name.
2: Yeah, well, I definitely didn't plan to. So um, it was kind of an accidental book, you might say. Uh, so I, um, in about 2018, I did, came to the idea that it would be interesting to bring my sexuality expertise to the topic of aging because I was thinking about the aging of populations, the higher number of older people in societies. And I thought this is maybe it's kind of topical thing. And I couldn't find a great deal of historical research um, on that intersection. And uh, I thought the, the French context is pretty curious. I knew that there was a big growth of gerontological literature and a few European cultures of the 18th and 19th centuries. So I thought, well, that might be a good place to start. And so I thought, aging, aging, uh, what kind of keywords would I use? And I was using quite a few, and menopause was one of them. And um, that was a really big hit, you might say, as a keyword. And I found a huge number of French texts um, talking about la menopause. And then I realized they had a few terms for this uh life period as well so then i was uh using some of those to to search through text and looking at what other people were citing you know the usual way that you kind of work out what is the important material and um, when you begin a project and uh, it became pretty clear to me within a few months that there was a very large source corpus that didn't appear to have been um understood by any of the existing scholarships. So I found some very excellent uh, French historical work on the history of French menopause, but usually um, all of them using uh, just a few texts as examples and each one of them using different texts. So um, it was pretty clear that I kind of needed to establish how large was the source corpus, How many people were writing about menopause in the 19th century? It seemed like from our current discourses, we, you, you hear this idea that uh, menopause is taboo, that we are only just getting to you know the, the point where medicine is uh, acknowledging that women go through this life change and might need different types of medical support. Well, the French were very aware of menopause in the 19th century, and so I, I was very interested in why was it such a big topic for them, and um, how is it we don't have any knowledge of this now? Like, how did that whole fascination get forgotten? And so um, that was kind of how it did. But I I thought that might be a later book, to be honest. So I was working on a project about how uh, Western biomedicine had kind of bifurcated the sexes in relation to aging. And so menopause was part of it, but I was thinking about men's aging and I was thinking about all of the different terms uh, used through the early modern period in the 18th century to describe um, life changes, crises, and the concept of climacteric moments. So that the book was more focused on that initially, and then COVID happened, <laughs> <laughs> and all of my travel plans <laughs> had to change. Um, and so I was living in Germany at the time and on a research fellowship in at the um, Hansa Wissenschaftkolleg in uh, north of Germany. And uh, we went into lockdown and I had to think about um, what I would do once it was clear that there was, this was not going to be a few weeks. This was going to mm. be, yeah. <laughs> Even at that time, I thought maybe a few months, not years. Um, so I, I rearranged my, my research plans, canceling all the travel to, to different libraries and archives, and um, decided to just focus on the French material and see if I could complete that book. And that was a it was a great decision because, as it turned out, I was in lockdown for several years, and I was able to to keep gathering that material for um, for several reasons. Um, first of all, I had just found a whole lot of it before the lockdown, so I made trips to France and, and and collecting materials. And then the um, one uh, library in particular, the Bibliothèque Interuniversitaire de Santé. Uh, which is the French health library, they have uh, now a very excellent digitization service. Mm-hmm. So I would find things in their catalog and, and I order them and they would scan them for me at very low cost. It was fantastic. They were incredibly helpful.
1: Oh, wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the way we do our work now is so different, even though mm-hmm. we really started, you know, um, the amount of material I can access from a living room, which is
2: great and sad. Um, yes. Yeah. It's both very exciting and incredibly um, scary. <laughs> <laughs> so, where does it stop? It just doesn't.
1: Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so, but one of the things you talk about really early on is kind of like, there's a great amount of, this is a huge hit, right? Everyone's talking about menopause, but actually much, much later than we we assumed, right? Um, one of the things that I was very surprised to learn with this book is Uh, that the early modern people don't seem to have an idea of la menopause Mm, mm.
2: yeah yeah I guess I I had uh, so so other people have been quite determined to find menopause in the early modern period and and I sort of looked very carefully at their evidence and and what their, their sort of understanding of what they were categorizing as menopause and I realized oh no I think there was a little bit of a misunderstanding. So I think sometimes when historians have gone looking for menopause, they've been thinking, did past cultures know that women ceased to menstruate and their concepted capacity stopped? So that was the question they were trying to answer. And if you ask that question, the answer, yes, of course they did. This was this was very well known even to Hippocrates, you know, the Hippocratic period, Galen, like this, this is a very it's known across a lot of different cultures. This is this is not particularly uh, modern Western. Um, but if you ask the question, did past cultures have a whole uh, symptomatology of menopause? Did they think it needed to be treated? That's a, that's a different kind of question. That was my primary question. And um, so I spent a lot more time with early modern sources than I expected to, because at the point where I decided the claim that there was an early modern menopause wasn't right, I thought, um, I'm going to need to establish this pretty seriously. <laughs> like, yeah. you, can't just, you can't just say, no, you're wrong, and then only provide, you know, a few bits of evidence. So um, that that was basically a whole year <laughs> just, um, just dealing with that problem before I got on with the rest of the book. But I'm, I'm really glad that I did do that. And, um, yeah, I also did have help from once I came back to Australia and I'd finished all of that work, I also had some funding left with my grant to hire a research assistant. Mm-hmm. Who had extremely good latin mm-hmm. and i just asked her to look over these sources i'd identified and make sure i was understanding them correctly because my latin is not amazing i take a long time to plod through and yeah, i never studied latin formally it's something i've just had to learn as an adult to be able to deal with historical sources but somebody who was actually trained in yeah, proper language uh, programs with it is, is better than i at uh, understanding it
1: yeah, that helps. It's still kind of a mess, though. I mean, like no one, no one's really good at, especially medieval Latin when it is mm. just a bunch of things. But not, not the argument, not the point. Mm. Um, so when I would like a little bit more kind of clarity on this idea that obviously people in history aren't stupid. They can tell they they know that there is a, a cessation of menses, mm. but but there's no, not an idea of the menopause. Like, what, how, how, does that, how do we make sense of that?
2: What does that mean to us? Yeah, look, I mean, I came at it, I guess, um, so when I first began working on this project about, about gender and aging, one of the things I did was read quite a lot of um, anthropological research. So I was thinking, from the get-go, I was thinking, well, how do other cultures deal with this? And, and is, there, is there a scholarship telling us, you know, how women age and what their attitudes are in different cultures? And the answer to that is yes, there's, there's quite a large corpus of, of anthropological research on this question. And all of it is more or less pointing to uh, a, a diversity of understandings of how we age. And um, in particular, a very important book by Margaret Locke on the Japanese concepts of women's ageing identified that, um, that, 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 that I mean, this is changing, of course, because of globalization. So that's another thing that, can talk about menopause is now globalizing but the um, the Japanese uh, women that she interviewed in the, the 1990s 1980s um, uh, had a very different account of, of of their aging and talked more about things like being cold and having shoulder pain not seeing it as a thing that required medical treatment not talking about hot flushes right which is the the classic symptom that, that emerges in the in the European context and so um, that's, that's kind of a, an interesting example of like, well, this is a very, uh, you know, this is a, a, an industrialized modern country. Um, we would it could, it could probably think there are similar sort of um, um, effects on our bodies, maybe in, in cultures across uh, Asia and Europe. But then, you know, there are some important differences as well. So I, I was thinking, well, OK, so there, we don't have a universal menopause syndrome, if you like. But that's not how it presents everywhere in the world. So why might it be appearing in the European context at this moment? And, and I, I, I thought about that in a genuinely open terms. It's not just um, it might be to do with a specific kind of what you might call a path dependency of how medicine emerges and the sort of things it's interested in. Or it might be to do with changing bodily life ways because this is a period where greater numbers of people are becoming more sedentary. We have all kinds of foods entering European markets that are, you might say, processed. So this is the the moment of the appearance of pastries and sweets. Um, We have the development of the rail system that means the circulation of alcoholic products at a level that's never been seen before. So the 19th century is very significant for, for the life ways of, of Europeans. So there are lots of things that change in the way people are living with their bodies in this period. So I was thinking very much about these sort of questions in the beginning, too.
1: Yeah, and the 19th century is our moment. So something massive changes in the 19th century. We have there's this explosion of discussion of menopause mm. and um, a lot of writing about it. So there's this life waste changes, which is very interesting to think about what, you know, this European diet that changes considerably. And mm-hmm. the, we talk about globalization now, but really, you know, 19th century Europe is a period of massive kind of a massive, like different, a new level of globalization as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, el- what else happens? I mean, this is we so we have kind of perhaps changing bodies. Um, but that's certainly not enough to explain why all of a sudden there's a discussion of this thing that everyone has seen for
2: Mm, mm. hundreds
1: of years. What else is happening?
2: Yeah, well, uh, quite a few things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess you could say I identified some two important lineages that that meet at the the very end of the 18th century that produced this explosion of literature. And, And one of them Um, is more or less through the Paris School of Medicine, the other through the Montpellier School of Medicine. But um, both of those schools were also quite influenced by another medical school in Germany, that in Halle. And so I I did trace uh, an important lineage to the early 18th century development there of um, a a larger number of of texts focusing on ageing, and focusing on women's reproductive and menstrual disorders that more or less brought these kind of two interests together. So we see studies of menstruation in the Huller context that refer to older women for the first time as um, belonging in this concern of the sort of things that can go, symptoms that can occur to women in relation to their reproductive systems you might say. So that's broadly the field of interest of the Huller School. And so the older women start appearing in those texts, which are mostly not focused on them, but they're in there.
0: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: So I think that's a really important development. And, and certainly uh, the Montpellier school was very connected to Halle. So the uh, major figures in, in that uh, conglomerate, um, uh, Stahl and Hoffmann, they were of great interest to some of the major uh, adopters in the Montpellier tradition. And the, the para school were very int- influenced by the Montpellier school as well. So... There are lots of connections between these these three faculties, but really the menopause get, kind of gets nailed out. The foundations of it start to appear through through the nexus of those three schools, and then I'd say it's Montpellier and, and Paris kind of fighting it out to claim this new invented term uh, that appears in, in the early 19th century, and it became a very um, important topic for assignment to to medical students to write their thesis on. So. Um, This is one of the reasons why I picked it up so easily searching the the French uh, National Library catalog, because they have all of the medical theses in there. And, um, yeah.
1: This is an interesting way to be able to observe a moment, Mm. right, an historical moment, as medical students are now writing theses about Mm. it. Mm. Okay. What is that? But what does that mean? (laughs) Mm. What has happened?
2: Um, that medical students are writing theses about it. Why are Yeah, they- yeah. No, I, I asked that question too. I thought, well, what is a thesis? It's, it's a training exercise. So it's important to think, well, why, why, why was menopause something that doctors, you know, medical professors wanted to teach their students? And then I looked at the sort of arguments they made about the term and why it was important. And the, the, the thesis will tell you this, right? That's one of their, their, their tasks is to explain why this topic matters. And what they said is, in many of them, that the concept, that a new idea of menopause is a proper scientific term to describe something which has previously been viewed in hysterical ways, in catastrophic ways, as a terrible thing that happens to women. This is not true. So they made up this idea that the past had made a big deal about women's crisis of ageing. Uh, their climacteric moment they said that that was the how the past viewed things and we're being sensible where we're saying no it's not a disease it's not a crisis it's just a, a normal life change that you must manage in a whole bunch of different ways so this isn't an illness uh-huh even though med- we're now going to talk
1: about it in medical terms right but it has to be managed yeah. through medical
2: care. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> oh, okay.
2: Uh, you can see why this is confusing. right? Um, I mean, if you, if you just take them at face value, you'd think, oh, okay, right. So menopause is just a, a very sensible reduction of anxiety about something that people previously worried about. They did not worry about it previously. They worried about it from this moment onwards because doctors were telling them they needed to.
1: Okay. So what happens? What are, um, so there's this crisis before, but now we're going to handle it. Like, let's put it, let's talk about medical care. What can happen? Um, I mean, this is part of a much larger kind of trend in writing about things, right? What, mm-hmm. what we call, what you call medicalization. Mm-hmm. So explain medicalization and how uh. this, how, how <laughs> menopause falls into the category of this.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's different ways of using that word. So, um, you know you have a lot of uh of if you if you google medicalization mostly the scholarship you'll identify will be sociological critiques of medicine in which people make the argument that there are things being subject to medical attention that shouldn't be so i thought well that's kind of an interesting view of menopause. And that, you know, that's a that's a legitimate argument that you, you could make about menopause that maybe we shouldn't worry about and we should just get on with living our lives. But that's not exactly my concern as a historian, right? So I'm more interested in how things that were not previously understood to be medical problems come to become so. So medicalization to me is is just a historical process in which more things get kind of absorbed into medical concern. And why do they do so? And and what does it? What are the implications? And how how do those ideas about treatment evolve? And why why do different categories of of uh, disease matter to medicine? So those were the more the questions I was asking about menopause. And I thought medicalization does accurately describe this absorption of new uh, categories of of, of experience. Um, but then I felt like I had to be careful to say. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a concept of menopause. Um, go knock yourself out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if it's helpful, if it, it, you know, if people find it helps them, then great. Uh, it's, that's not a problem. I'm just very interested in how it came to be this concern. Right. So there's this process wherein things are being, dis-
1: like many topics are being discussed mm. in a medical frame. Um, and what is, what's the tie in with gender? Like it's because medical, like, medical professionals replace uh, other you know other voices in mm. the care of for older women.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so there, there was a huge literature, you might say emerging in the 19th century on women generally, and that that had that was a slow burn, so you might say there's been a kind of interest in women's medicine. From the the period of, of you know from the Hippocratic Galenic period and and all you know pretty continuously um, throughout the medieval and early modern period, but you really start to see a, a bigger interest in it from the beginning end of the 16th early 17th century. So this is really where women's medicine begins to form, and the term gynecology appears in that moment as well. So at the beginning of the 18th century, there's already a very substantial medical interest in particular things that happen to women that don't happen to men. And uh, so all of the questions about uh, menstruation, uh, pregnancy, um, lactation, uh, childbearing and menopause all start to be to be on the radar in a way that they had not been previously as matters of, of medical concern. But overwhelmingly, women's medicine up to the 18th century was very much concerned with the question of how to um, stop women dying in childbirth, which is an overwhelming problem of women's medicine. And that remains so through the 18th century. By the mid-19th, that's starting to shift. And there's, I guess, more space for doctors to be, be thinking about all the different kinds of things that might happen to women not just the threat that they face in bearing children but uh, all of the life cycles of women you might say like all of these reproductive cycles of menstruation and the life life changes are viewed as moments where women are particularly vulnerable to disease and mm-hmm. you can see how you might come to that view if you're used to women dying in childbirth. Um, so that then that idea kind of collides with another concept which has also been hanging around for a while through the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, the idea of climacteric moments. And so um, this is this is an idea that has its origins in uh, in, in medieval astrology, um, with inspiration from Ptolemy, so it has some ancient uh, Greek roots as well. And it's the idea that the body turns over all its cells in seven year cycles. And so at the end of every seven years, we have this moment of vulnerability or crisis, but it's understood to be more or less positive. It's it's both a, a vulnerability and an opportunity. And if we can survive that crisis, we come out stronger and then are good for another seven years. And so menopause is kind of assimilated to this idea as well. It's understood definitely in the, certainly in the Montpellier tradition, as being a kind of positive crisis that one can survive in order to become stronger
1: and is it are we seeing something where like these the changes particularly in regards to reproductive like reproductive processes for women are just more noticeable or do they become pathologized for, or do they become pathologized because women are dying like, why the focus on women and as set as apart from men
2: well, uh, there is, particularly in France, I would say more than, than other cultures, a, somewhat of a, a fixation with the idea that men and women are radically different from one another. Um, so the, the French in this period are very much seeing women as almost a different species. They're, 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 they're prepared to admit that they're, they're human, but they really think that everything is completely differently wired and, and, and laid out, and they need an entirely separate field of medicine unto them. So uh, I think that is very, um, you know, very generative for for the, the, the focus on all kinds of women's experiences and conditions. Mm-hmm. And when it's taken with the notion that there are both climacteric crises that occur in every in all bodies, and there are reproductive crises occurring for women because of their menstrual cycle and their childbearing and their, their menopause, right? So all of those things. Uh, point toward the view that women maybe need more treatment than men so that, that women are more medicalized if you like right they are they are understood to require more doctor's appointments and more medications and more monitoring of their aging
1: yeah, yeah. okay so women are just generally more pathologized
2: and so... more long-lived so that's it. <laughs> somewhat of an irony because it's also in this moment they realize women are the also the 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 sex that are living longer so this causes a little bit of a conflict in the medical literature because when you think of of, uh, being more prone to disease you might think well you're also not going to live as long and so previously the question of mortality and morbidity you know being dying and being sick they were understood to be more or less parallel what we see at the end of the 18th century is they kind of split off directly as a result of doctors arguing about what it means that women are both more sick and live longer. And they realize, no, we need two concepts that are different from one another. They don't track together. And one is morbidity. And you can have that from the time of adolescence all through your lifespan. And this is what they think is the case for women. And mortality, which is just when it all ends, I think men are, men are fine, they trundle along, they, they go through puberty without any problems, they age well, and then boom, something takes them out.
0: Mm.
2: Women, they get to puberty, everything falls to pieces, they, they drag themselves through their life, and it just goes on and on and on.
1: Right, because aging is more precarious, not, not simply like the end of it, but from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. All of these stable stages for women are met with different just frantic hysteria, mm-hmm. hysteria, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And So you might say that menopause kind of emerges at the moment before aging itself was really thought about in, all, in, in the way that we do now. So this is definitely one of the sources of debate among doctors. There'd be some who say, well, as soon as women cease to menstruate, they have all these problems. I I know because I've examined older women and they have, you know, breast cancer and uh, uterine cancer and uh, cirrhosis of the liver and uh, dementia. And so they, they can identify all these diseases of aging, but they attribute it to menstruation. They say, well, it's because she's not menstruating. You get other doctors saying, well, that just seems like they're getting older, right? I mean, that's happening to men as well. Men don't have menstruation, so maybe that's not menopause. And so this is it becomes the ground for sorting out some of these questions about what are the pathologies of aging and which are specific to women and which are not.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is there, um, is there an idea then that I mean, all the way around, i'm I'm still just trying to wrap my head around how much women is is there like what's the kind of what is the actual axis? Is it about the aging? Is it about being a woman? what is it about the this like very clear repro- reproductive cycle? kind of what's what is the crisis point for women?
2: Well, I mean, women were just thought to be always in crisis, right? so the the idea that there are there is a menstrual cycle to doctors meant that women are not stable. They're, they're constantly moving through these different crises of the lifespan. They are the sex that is in crisis. So, if you understand crisis in a positive sense, the, the, in the way that you get through the Montpellier tradition, it's, you might think, well, maybe that's something magnificent about women that they are—they have these continual reinventions and, and opportunities to, to, to renew themselves. If you understand it more in the Paris view that emerges at the beginning of the 19th century it's pretty bad. it just means you're sick all the time right so the crisis is a, is a thing to be avoided
1: um, I you also get into um, in in the book in chapter seven you start talking about, uh, psychiatry mm-hmm. um, and erotomania and degeneration and I found yes. this also quite fascinating I'd love and our readers would our listeners would love to hear about that as well mm,
2: mm. yeah well I thought okay so what is the relationship between menopause and hysteria hysteria is a really big topic in 19th century psychiatry it's specific to women it relates to the reproductive system so I thought that's an, an interesting place to go looking and uh, I'm quite surprised to find that actually most doctors didn't think older women were prone to hysteria. Um, and I could have just put it to bed at that point and said, okay, I'm not going to pursue that any further. It's not a topic. But I noticed that they nonetheless did talk about menopause. And so I looked a bit more closely at what they were saying about it. And what they said is that uh, women, as they get, to me- I mean, hysteria is a disease of younger women when their uterus and reproductive organs are most active and it deranges their brains. Older women don't have that problem because the uterus is now going into a sort of latency, but that transition toward its latency can also perturb their brains, and it does so in a very specific way by producing sexual perversions. So I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and so I started investigating a bit further. To what extent were people being diagnosed with this? Well, they were not only being diagnosed, they, they were being incarcerated So I did track a few cases of women who were um, placed in uh, asylums and kept there for many years on the grounds of uh, inappropriate sexual behaviours. One woman uh, liked to walk around her home naked and her family found this intolerable. So she found herself in an asylum. Another woman had a penchant for seducing younger men of a working class background. And this was thought to be incredibly inappropriate as well. So there were all sorts of behaviors that were identified as representing this menopausal erotomania. And so the implications for for those women were sometimes pretty drastic. Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, And are we seeing a kind of a similar discussion of the lecherous old man? How do these things compare?
2: Well, people are worried about lecherous older men, but not as a whole big category of pathology. So you definitely find concerns about that in the psychiatric literature too. But um, there isn't a whole other literature that can be drawn upon in the way that there is for menopause. And so there's already a substantial body of, of medical writing identifying menopause as a, as a kind of problem time. So the psychiatrists coming into that can say, "Well, okay, so we have this whole mechanical explanation, and we have this whole, uh, you know, reinforced literature that supports our view that that, that women should be treated for mental pathologies." Uh, at the time of the cessation of menses.
1: yeah, I'm I'm getting this whole story of women just being, uh, you know, much more susceptible
2: to the demands of their fickle bodies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So women were, I and mean, in France, women were vastly more incarcerated in asylums than men in the mid 19th century. By the end of the 19th century, it was becoming clear that wasn't quite right. But uh, in that mid, that peri- middle period, it was very much the case that they were more targeted.
1: Yeah. What happens when um, when female medical professionals start writing?
2: Yeah, so you start to see um, <clears throat> women entering medicine in France uh, fairly early in the 19th century, but not necessarily as official doctors. So there were quite a few women now collaborating with, uh, with doctors and um, eff- effectively getting the same education, but not the qualification at the end of it and the entitlement to practice. They would nonetheless um, write about, uh, uh, about women's health as well a very matter-of-fact way, but some of, the, some of them took on all of the men's discourse. So it, it, all of the, the, the nailing out of menopause, if you like, was done by 19-year-old medical students at the, at the, the universities. When women started to attend to it, they mostly dismissed a lot of the, uh, the, the claims about it being a terrible time for women, but some of them got on that bandwagon and became you know, proponents of that view as well. So I I sort of looked both at medical writings by women on menopause um, and I looked at also uh, um, fictional and other kinds of writers who were considering women's ageing to see whether menopause figured in their kind of perspective about it. And that was a really valuable exercise because I think when you focus on a, a topic in the history of medicine, you see a lot of publications appearing it's easy to think that this is really getting out there into society in a big way. At the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, there were still a lot of women who had passed through the period of what we would now consider to be menopause without really paying it attention of that kind, even though the concept was available and doctors were talking about it. And
1: then also women are starting to write kind of fiction
2: about it by, mm. by the beginning of the 20th century, yes? Well, not really about it, but that certainly the, having the, a concept of something that they are passing through in that time. So I think it's it's interesting to see all the different ways that it's possible to understand that transition if you don't use the concept of menopause, which I'd, I'd say no, none of them really did. So they had other ways of understanding it. Um, how else do you understand this period? <laughs> like, yeah, you have to read Colette, or uh... Uh, I wouldn't recommend reading the Comtesse de Tramar. She's um, quite a quite an odd individual. Uh, she was uh, someone who liked to give advice to women in the the apostolic tradition of uh, I'm an aristocrat, so you should live like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she offered a few different ways that women could negotiate their aging. She was particularly concerned that you not be flirtatious and try to make yourself pretty because that would just be tragic. Um, But she was also uh, laying open the possibility of a a life of piousness or alternatively a life of sexual perversion. So these were options that she considered valid.
1: It's an interesting picture we get of old age. Yeah, Um, uh, it's it's just I I cannot get over being fascinated by the idea that there is menopause just looms so large in the modern mind, right? Uh Of this moment, of uh, you know that it's this transition that really symbolizes so much else about womanhood and the idea that for most of human history we weren't really that it wasn't even you know a thing uh, mm-hmm. is really fascinating and i just cannot still having trouble as a trained historian wrapping my brain around this change mm-hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I guess it is really the emergence of a period in which people are going to doctors for stuff that is not life-threatening. So, I mean, that's a, a broad shift that's happening uh, in, the, in, the, in industrialised Europe in this period and uh, maybe wasn't so much happening before. So the, the elites perhaps have always been open to, to, to treatments of different kinds. Um, I did look in the... So the, the aristocrats typically had a whole uh, medical arsenal at home and sometimes some of them would sort of catalog it. So some of those catalogs are available. And you can see what sort of medications people kept in their, in their home um, sort of chemistry kit. And um, there, there were a wide variety of things that people were giving themselves and, and taking for different uh, um, ailments um, throughout the lifespan, as well as doing things like bloodletting. That, that bloodletting was a big treatment all through the early modern period. Everyone um, was doing bloodletting. It wasn't specific to any particular group, but it was thought in the eighteenth century to be an excellent treatment for aging of both sexes.
1: Yeah, and bloodletting con- and regularly, right? Quite mm-hmm. regular. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, every day.
2: Yeah, you know, like
1: you know, kind of like getting a facial or something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. En- enemas too. Enemas very popular. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. wow I have I find this work fascinating and I have enjoyed talking to you but I'm mm-hmm. taking up tons of your time so I'm just gonna one more question then we can go uh but uh so what are you working on right now what's next
2: yeah so um a couple of things I mean so at the end of the the book I took in the last chapter of the book about menopause I talk about the emergence of French gynecology and how women uh with fibroid tumors became a sort of t- one of the early targets for experimental hysterectomy. So that got me interested in, in the emergence of gynaecology sort of from the perspective of its impact on patients. And there I, I began working on a project about that. And, and then because I like to read across different disciplines, I read some work in uh, anthropology and in sociology on uh, women's experiences of gynaecological surgeries. And, uh, ended up actually collaborating with the scholars working in that area. So, um, yeah, so that's a project that I'm, I'm, I'm working on now. I'm also very interested in preventative health, right? So how we come to have this idea in the modern era that there are a, a array of knowledges and practices needed to preserve our bodies. And um, that was a big concern of the 19th century. And doctors writing about menopause had a long set of prescriptions, that things that you could do to oneself, you know, to, to, to age better. And so that mm-hmm. idea really um, began to globalise uh, through the 20th century at the same time as medicine stopped really worrying about it all that much. And as, as medicine became far more scientific and, and focused on clinical trials and specific medications and, and surgeries, the idea of that the individual should take responsibility for their health wasn't really of concern mm-hmm. to, to doctors anymore. But we probably do more of it now than ever, right? I mean, there's so many products and, and practices that are being yeah, done all the time by ordinary people. So in, in yeah, a sense, we have medicalized to to an enormous degree, uh, self-medicalization.
1: Yeah, in-home self-medicalization, mm, continual mm. obsession with mm. staying as young as possible for as long yeah. as we
2: possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, oh, so um, I'm very interested in this. I would really like to write a history of self-medicalization.
1: Oh yeah, and I'm I'm interested. I'd like to think about you know, self-care, like when mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of I'm thinking about you know, um, like the sanitariums and and stuff that you can see is like a, a as what we would could be characterized as self-care mm-hmm. or working on yourself or something like that. It's mm-hmm. an interesting. Mm-hmm. It's kind of modern rebranding of an 18th, 19th century practice.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the idea has been around for a long time, but I think just the volume of it (laughs) really begins to increase in the 19th century onwards.
1: Yeah, and I I mean, how it's meant to be your job now Mm -hmm. is very Mm -hmm. interesting. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I am I'm great. Write it. I can't wait to read it. Just get on that. Uh, obviously, obviously, it's a little harder, a little harder uh, to do than say. But great, Allison. Thank you so much for uh, getting up bright and early in oh, in uh, Sydney to have this chat with me. Uh, and take care. Thank
2: you. Been a pleasure.